Hello and welcome to Flavour Talks, the BSF's podcast exploring the wonderful world of flavours. Listen in to learn more about the people who make the food you eat taste great. Today on this podcast, we are speaking to Marianne Martin. Now, Marianne has been in the industry as a nose for, I believe, 48 years as a creative perfumer and also as a perfume mentor. Marianne is also on the British Society of Perfumers Council and has been the president for the second time. Welcome to the podcast, Marianne. Hello, and thank you for asking me. Marianne, it's, it's great to have you on the podcast today. So I'd like to, first of all, ask you an open question, really, just how you got interested in perfumery as a perfumer. Um, and for example, like what did you do at school that kind of led you into what you're doing today? Oh, that's interesting. So maybe I'll start with a teacher that inspired me, who mm-hmm. was, uh, her name was Miss Kett, and she was a chemistry teacher. And uh, she was excellent, amazing. She used to um, work for the Nuffield Foundation to... Um, organized syllabus for chemistry and things she was a fantastic teacher so um I did very well in chemistry and then went on to do a degree in chemistry at Exeter and but I I felt education in general was a little bit what can I say it sort of squashed me a bit I think and uh, so I actually did a year to teach small children um, but that didn't work out because I'm not very good at uh, organising 36 people and telling them what to do. So um, I ended up more by chance than anything with a job at um, Zimmerman Hobbs, who were the, who were essential oil um, trader, and they also had a, a fragrance department and a fra- flavour department. So I. I was uh, at that time doing sort of wet chemistry, boiling up round bottom flasks, measuring what we called carbonyl values because we couldn't, we didn't know which uh, aldehyde we were testing. And uh, then I, I started to train as a perfumer doing um, and doing analysis as well um, with an early GC gas crew. That's super cool. And so like, I, I guess there was a like a, a slight leap, like you would you were doing. I, I guess it was a, maybe like a PGC type thing, uh, teaching mm. teaching young kids, and then le- leapt into something entirely different. What what kind of drove that? I guess initially it must have been something to do with uh, being less fulfilled than you felt you could be for the for the remainder of your life. Yeah, um, yeah. Or, I mean, the teaching didn't really work out, and it was just you know I looked around for three jobs. And uh, I, I got three interviews and one was in a factory making cigarette filters mm. and one was actually um, for Plessy and would have, I would have gone into computers, which is interesting, but um, I would have had to have had the first six months in a fume cupboard with a lady who was now about half my age, but at the time she was twice my age and you had to be completely immaculately clean uh, to actually make um, computer components. Yeah. And uh, this was in the 70s, so very early days before many computers had been made. 
So it would have been a fascinating career, but I couldn't really envisage that first six months. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. But it's so fascinating how like everyone came to be and then how your, your life slowly gets turned upside down. Uh, could you give us like maybe like a rundown of your can you remember like your your first day um well that's it I mean I was I I think I was hooked from the first day because Mm. um I I'm fascinated by herbs I knew quite a lot of herbs before I actually entered the trade and I'd also done mad things like I remember on campus once when as a student I spent about 10 minutes smelling a laurel bush flower (laughs) doing a bit of mindfulness you know, having read uh, Brave New World and things like that. And uh, so I think I was already sort of on the path. And I was so excited, too, when I went, I, I found a cardamom pod in a, in a, in a curry um, mm-hmm. when I was a student. And I went round to the local delicatessen and bought some cardamom. And of course, in those days, no, not many people knew about the, the spices. So when I arrived at the at Zimmerman Hobbs it was just like magic to be in an environment where I was working with the Romans all day so mm-hmm. yeah just really and when you were thinking about you know you're saying that in your earlier days as a student you were sniffing a lot of things and just being quite curious in general about things so you studied chemistry as an undergrad I believe and did you think much about the chemistry of what may have been going on with these smells or was that no no I didn't I have to say I didn't explore that it wasn't we did a we did a module on terpenes, mm-hmm. but I have to say I didn't take too much notice of it at the time as students. <laughs> I have to confess, but yeah, it. Um, so the answer is no, not really. It was more an experience that I, um, you know, I was drawn to rather than what was behind the experience. So that has all come in later years. Yeah. And the other, the other thing that, you know, we perhaps might talk about later, what I find fascinating is having the psychology of my experience in the 90s sort of explained as, as the uh, science has progressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. really, really cool. And kind of like the, there's the uh, psychophysical, this, this kind of neuroscientific basis for smell and explaining our experience, you know, so like, uh, our experience hasn't really changed that much, and maybe individual experiences change uh, based on j- the, just the sheer quantity of things that you're able to uh, smell and the, the things that you're able to experience. Uh, but really, the the ability to to smell certain things, and maybe we can talk about this later as well, and maybe your insights into this, that, that if you think about, um, again, slightly philosophically, we're born with this innate ability to be able to detect these different chemical signatures in nature. And that's an amazing thing. You know, that's an amazing thing that we, uh, before we're born, we have the genetic makeup that determines what we're able to smell and how things will smell. So that's like a crazy thing, which I I really, really hope that we're able to like delve into slightly, slightly further later on. But I wanted to note, uh, you just quickly, briefly uh, mentioned, great book by Huxley um, that you were reading, uh, I guess, ages ago, and that maybe the, the, the world uh, played you a favor, you know, so Providence was on your side and you ended up in a, in a fascinating industry with a fascinating job that maybe you, you hadn't even anticipated beforehand. But I have just reread Brave New World. No, that's uh, bad. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think maybe 
so I, I put it down uh, for the second time now. I put it down maybe two weeks ago. Yeah, so I, I'm, I do read a lot, but it was just completely a whim uh, for me to actually read fiction again for the first time in a long time. And uh, there's so much, I don't know if you've ever had the inclination to read it again. No, but I haven't, but I have now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's, there's so much about olfaction in Brave New World. And the way that Huxley is, is really describing um, an atmosphere, it, it kind of it pulls you into like, do you know this, this classic, like often um, noted or quoted stuff from um, the, the, Mad the Madeleine, you know, like yeah. what the Madeleine tasted like in Roust. the dip mm. tea and exactly. Um, but actually Huxley does a far better job of it and uh, explains how like the, the musks and things change the environment. And it would be amazing to see a smellscape of this book. I would love to see a, like a, a multi-sensorial kind of expose on, on the book, which would be amazing. And maybe we can set that uh, as a task for Aidan. You'd love it. Well, I, ha I haven't read it. So I just want to, so I've, I've never read much fiction in the sides of olfaction. Is this, is this author a perfumer or just someone like interested in hair? So what kind of thing is it? No, no. So it's so it's kind of prophetic. It's kind of like a, a prophetic book talking about potential futures, but in a, uh, a, a I guess, a, like a, a made up imagined environment or a made up future. Um, so it's it's definitely kind of like um, sci-fi if in the mm. way that it's like thinking about things, but so many of the prophecies have in fact come to pass, um, particularly with regards to like, uh, political structure and things like that, and our kind of uh, over-dependence perhaps on uh, technology and actually the state of te technological advancement. But um, what was super fascinating for me is actually how much olfaction is is within the pages. It's super, super. Wow. I think you'll, you'll find it fascinating. Well, maybe that was really why I was in inspired to, to smell this flower, I think, from, from reading that. Uh, Mariana, I wanted to go back to to just generally what what it's like being a perfumer. But first, I'm going to swing it a bit. I want to ask Trevor what a perfumer is, and Marianne, I want to ask you what a flavorist is, and I'd like to kind of see your explanations of both of your jobs. So maybe with Trevor, a perfumer. Uh, so perfumers are wonderfully talented and very very lucky people that <laughs> get the opportunity to create scents so uh they create scents by by blending um in a, a chemically stable way uh, different volatile aromatics in order to create a unified experience and they they would send lots of different uh, consumer packaged goods um but also uh, i guess create fragrances for for lots of different things mm -hmm. i don't know how many you can give me a score out of five or ten or i'll three. give you a strong strong four i would give you trevor there because you did uh, you did also explain a lot of a part of a flavorish job as well well don't give the game away oh okay 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 <laughs> marianne do you want to take us off of what a flavorist is so or what you think it may be so I think a flavorist is someone who who blends uh, aromatic chemicals and and in which might be individual chemicals or might be uh, essential oils, and they 
their aim is to create something that that tastes pleasant hopefully most of the time um but the taste also is, is very much involved with the the sense of smell so the so it's very very line to to perfumer's job as you say it's sort of half the perfumer's job the other half being that it needs to have the right mouthfeel and or support the right mouthfeel maybe have some uh acid elements um maybe sour elements um so that there's a whole art if you like of, of flavorists that i don't quite understand of sort of what happens in the mouth but once the aromatics go what we call the retro nasal route they go to exactly the same place in the at the back of the nose in the uh, epithelium so once we get there we're both very similar mm. how, can, how can i give you any less than five out of five <laughs> yeah I thought I was... hang on basically a job description <laughs> <laughs> yeah but also you 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 flavor many different uh you know uh, substrates don't you you know both liquid and and powders and all sorts of things so again you have lots of applications as as we do i think if so if i was to to explain it, i'm not a flavorist i'm a phd student in flavor chemistry but i've been on a quite a few of these parts, um Tre trevor has been on them quite, quite a lot as well a lot more than i have definitely but what i believe a flavorist is is just what you said it's definitely combining different materials and ingredients together but it's by creating something that's actually quite uh, realistic to nature. Uh, so, for example, it may be an orange flavor, apple flavor. And this is by using a lot of the compounds that are actually found in nature. I mean, we spoke to Jack Knights and before GCMS, he's a fl uh, flavorist um, many, many years ago and is still working as one. Uh, he he uh, spoke about making strawberry, strawberry flavors before they even kind of knew what was found in a strawberry, strawberry flavor. But by actually just using the nose and combining it together, it smelt like nature because these things are found in nature in, for example, the essential oil. I guess a perfumer um, is very similar to that, um, but it really depends on what kind of project you have. You may have a lot more money to be able to make a more fine fragrances than a perfume, some more expensive materials, but a flavor can have to be a lot, lot more cheap, I guess. But a flavorist can make it very dilute in parts per million when you think about it that's that's used for the regulations whereas a perfumer can be right up to parts per thousands and parts per hundreds so a perfumer is a nose but a flavorist doesn't get called a nose but they're not quite called a taster so it's kind of uh are they i don't i don't know that, <laughs> that's kind of what i think but i myself right now i i see myself as trying to I'm in this middle part currently, which keeps moving over, depending on what podcast we're having. It's uncomfortable <laughs> on that fence. And also it sounded like you were maybe fishing for some points out of five. Yeah, I think I was. Yeah, I would give you four as well. It's good. Because I think that uh, it's not necessarily, there's, there's a lot of maybe dichotomies that you, that you introduce that are not necessarily true. So um, a flavorist doesn't always try and replicate nature. Like if you think about a cola flavor, yeah. what does that mean? Bubblegum flavor. I've never seen bubblegum bubblegum growing on trees. So there is definitely some scope for the for the imaginative and yeah. for uh, evoking a certain experience that that might you you want a, a consumer to be able to experience that uh, with a, a sense of gestalt. So like many different parts uh, becoming one. Yeah, which is not dissimilar to I guess um, 
a perfumer, but you also wanted to um, behave in the right way through a different kind of um, using experience, you know? So like you would use a perfume in multiple different end uses in different ways, and you would use a, a flavor in multiple different end uses and ways too. But definitely one is towards the um, towards the realm of like consumption and imbibation, and mm -hmm. the other one is definitely not. Yeah, one one thing. I mean, I I must admit, as you know, in, as I started in my career, I could have gone to the flavor side. Mm -hmm. It was actually a flavorist who was encouraging me to start to train, but I was more drawn to perfumery because. I wasn't so keen on sort of uh, reproducing nature. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I can just have a, a lemon. I don't, you know, I don't yeah, yeah. want to have a, a lemon flavor. I want mm -hmm. to eat the lemon. Um, but I think flavors have come a long way since then. And uh, I, th I, I agree with you, Trevor. And I, in fact, you mentioned it recently and I thought, oh yes, you're right. The, the um, flavors of today are much more imaginative, mm. I think, than they were in the seventies. Well, it, well, I wasn't, I wasn't around in, in the seventies, but from 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 what I've heard about flavors, it's definitely changed a lot and uh, how they've they've been composed. Just actually, kind of weirdly, like because I'm experimenting a lot with perfumery, I actually bought. Um, uh, I'm not going to name the brand, but I bought a bottled sparkling water the other day. I was down in London. I was really thirsty. Uh, and it was an apple and uh, blackberry flavor. And I opened it and straight away, it was like exaltedly. That's, that's like, I was like, oh my good God, I, I smell like musk. I've never really experienced it to that state before of smell musk. I know musks are used in, in these types of flavors, but it was such a shock to me. But it's perhaps maybe using it more i'm more kind of sensitive to it it's also weird to to think of actually like musks it's kind of like it's the same as what we were saying before i guess about like uh aldehydes something can be aldehydic and an aldehyde but benzaldehyde is is also an aldehyde and yeah this is this is not you know? so like a musk uh musk is is one of those particular things that is a sensory quality um but that lots of things that pot potentially aren't um kind of designated as musks could have sensory qualities exhibiting musk characteristics and of course you you use um you do use musks in in berry flavors don't you and they are found in berries yeah but there's also things that we would use that maybe uh, like ambretolide uh, yeah. that's well, a mask yeah. exactly yeah so yeah. so things like that are, are super super useful in berry flavors but also in other in other mm -hmm. fruit flavors, so like some some peach flavors and things like that. But I guess it it's each to the creators. Um, everyone has a bit of um, creative license, you know. So yeah, yeah. And without smelling what what Aiden sorry had, yeah. um, it may be that that flavorist has has used more, you know, made the musk a, li a little bit more evident than it would be in nature. But the other possibility is it's your mind that now knows what musk smells like and actually is more attuned to it and sees it at a high you know perceives it at a higher level than maybe yep. another consumer might which is one of the things i was talking about how you know we now understand the perception much more 
and you know it wasn't to, it was only through the 90s that I started to to appreciate that other people weren't seeing mm. the same picture as me to use a visual analogy it's very interesting you, you went you spoke about um Trevor using uh aldehydes now what makes it quite confusing is perfumery and Marion I'll, I'll be able to tell you as well it, the, most of the aldehydes are actually lactones and that's what makes it even more aldehyde c14 which... No, well, well, that that's a, that's an anomaly from the beginning of the twentieth century when they they started with the you know aldehydes in in perfumery, mm-hmm. and then they had these really powerful um, chemicals that they started to use, and then they they came across the lactones, and instead of calling them a lactone, they decided to call them aldehyde C fourteen and aldehyde C sixteen and aldehyde C eighteen, which I find really annoying, but. Um, which are also mm-hmm. quite useful in strawberry, strawberry flavors. Um, but but that's a thing that like there's there's lots of misnomers and red herrings and and things all over the place where uh, perhaps the the common name for a certain material doesn't actually uh, belie its um, chemical structure or really its use that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those kinds of things are all over the shop. And actually, lactones lactones are often very difficult to balance because um, I know that that. Um, Jan, who's on the, the BSF Council, has done some work in the past on um, odor activity and release curves. Um, so like maybe not odor activity, but like release curves of certain uh, materials and the fact that they are not linear. You know, so oh, if you oh. have uh, one PPM and two PPM, two PPM, PPM doesn't necessarily smell like double one PPM. You know, mm. so they are uh, negatively regressive curves and each different. You know, so. Um, the other interesting uh, kind of, I guess, phenomenon that happens with these things is that you have synergistic effects with different materials that you use. So mm-hmm. um, sometimes things can become very overpowering um, quite quickly in in the addition or how you how you add those things together. So I would always suggest um, what's a, a removable, uh, like removing something to really find out what the true effect of that material is. The emissions test, they call that, isn't exactly. that? That's used yeah. a lot in flavour as well, more for obviously finding out um, character impact molecules as well, isn't it? So, Yeah, yeah, super useful. Um, that, that's one thing I would say, you know, it's, I do admire flavourists and I do um, really enjoy working alongside them when I have because, you know, things like maybe a coconut, I might just use gammon on a lactone and then you know, I discover that the flavorist is using five or six different coconut, uh, different lactones to, to get the effect that they want. And I think they do explore the complexity of some of these naturals a bit more than, than perfumers do sometimes. Yeah, I think uh, uh, maybe sometimes. And I think it's like uh, each of their own, you know, sometimes mm. we focus on certain things and you guys focus on certain things. But uh, there's, I feel like there's always something to be gained in... Mm collaborating with someone mm. that sees things from a different perspective and maybe is like highlighting certain notes that you wouldn't necessarily focus on or you didn't really think about you know so yeah, yeah. I think that's 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 definitely a thing that people should do more often if they are able to yeah I, I certainly miss working in a house where I'm not in contact with the flavorist they will they will always um feed me if you like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think all of this, these kind of conversations are fascinating, but maybe we should take it back uh, ever so slightly, just Mm -hmm. in terms of like, um, Marianne, like what do you, do you recall maybe your first 
um, fragrance project, you know, like the first one that you can really remember was like, this is a big deal. You know, uh, you, you felt uh, positive about the outcome and perhaps it was because uh, it was a challenge to, to produce, but do you, do you have any like uh, kind of recollection of like some things that you've worked on in the past that, and you don't have to give brand names or anything, but like things that you were trying to create and the that sense of discovery and creation by the end of it really gave you like a you know that that sense of success or like the yeah it, that's that's a difficult one thinking about one comes back to me you know going back to the really early days when I would have still been very much consider myself and as a trainee um I wasn't allowed to explore a lot I didn't you know I wasn't restricted to to um to follow any specific route if you like and I remember it was a peach actually that I think I was working on and I I may I combined it with quite a, a green note and a perfumistic green note um with a material that um we sometimes call triplau um and which is not nature identical so I don't think is I don't, I'm not sure if it's FEMA. Sometimes I look up things that I assume aren't FEMA because they're not nature identical. And then I discover that they are. But anyway, I believe that one isn't. And those sort of notes. And I was really interested in the effect that I got. And yeah, my colleagues were pleased with it. And, uh, you know, it was sort of early success, if you like, as, as, uh, as a young perfumer, sort of creating something that perhaps others weren't expecting and and uh you know not flowing a, a sort of classic route yeah no so, and i think sometimes that that's when that's when when genius happens i guess when you are given the freedom to like explore the bounds of possibility you know so like really thinking about like you, you weren't necessarily thinking about how to push this but you were seeing it in a completely different perspective to other people and therefore you were creating something that they had no way of anticipating, which is which is actually quite cool when you're thinking about innovation and creation and and how people commonly design things to thinking about how to to do something kind of extraordinary. You know, I, I, I think that's why we, you know, it, it's always good to have young people coming in, and you know, it's refreshing to have young young noses appearing because they don't necessarily f- follow the rules, so therefore they discover new things. Yeah. And whereas yeah, yeah. once as you as you work with your experience, you sort of think, oh, well, I know that that and that works. So you carry on. You know, it, you tend to get if you like in a rut. I mean, you still hopefully discover new things, but you're more likely to, um, you know, work on your past experience. Yeah. Have you have you ever created something that you did not like? Oh, loads of times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that's happened to you as well, Trevor. Are you going to admit, all the time. You're admit all that? The time. All the time. It happens all the time because you create, like at the end of the day, like I, I'm the creator, but I'm not the purchaser. So mm. I'm creating for someone else's uh, ideal, you know? So when someone asks for a particular, I don't know, let's say strawberry again, um, I know I know to me what, what that strawberry should be to be perfect, but I'm not the one buying the flavor, you know? The person who's buying the flavor is who I'm creating it for. 
Um, and if I was just creating flavors for flavorists, it's a pretty small market. So you need to be creating things that um, a multitude of people and the widest market possible can enjoy and appreciate. That's right. I, I, I often liken it to a commercial artist, which, you know, people understand, I think, the lay people understand that you're, you're working in a commercial world to a brief. And uh, it's, it's hard to make the time to play, which is what you need really to, to make the next uh, new creation. But, yeah. uh, I guess a question for both of you is you say, uh, particularly Trevor speaking about um, making something for some, making something that you don't particularly like. How do you know when to stop? Because, but just by client uh, interaction, is that the the only, or do you just throw the towel down and say that'll do? I can't smell it anymore. I think this is probably relevant and uh, actually true of, of perfumery too. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong. But um, you're trying to identify what a particular customer is looking for. Now, we, our language, whether it be English, uh, French, or whatever, is not that great at describing olfaction. It, mm -hmm. it, we, we, our language is kind of designed uh, to, to be visual-based. You know, so we're basing a lot of our descriptors and things on what you can see in terms of colors and in terms of uh, things that you know from your, your environment, but it's very much visually based. Now, if you, it's, it's kind of the reason that we have the descriptor in, in both perfumery as well as flavor, flavor uh, of green. You know, we know what that looks like, but mm. how, does, how does green, how is that an, an olfactory descriptor? But it, it's a great descriptor and you get it spot on. Mm -hmm. but, so when you're trying to, you're trying to establish the same language between yourself and your customer. So you need to identify what they like, what they don't like, and how to best uh, kind of get to their anticipated end. So I, what I would often do is send people a, um, a few samples and ask them what they like about those samples and maybe what they don't like about those samples. So it, it's a, a kind of a, a <laughs> like a crude way of doing um, Bayesian learning. You know, so um, you're trying to get closer to an established positive by identifying what isn't positive. You know, so you're getting closer and closer to a success. But it's all about, I guess, understanding how other people experience an aroma rather than judging that just on yourself and then using their experience um, to elicit certain um kind of uh, ideation like ideas you know so like if you if if i gave you a, a chocolate flavor and you said no i need this to be more cooked i would know what what materials to use mm. in order to make that more cooked for you you know but even though i'm i'm using chemicals in order to elicit that experience i'm doing that in order to make it uh kind of um fit in with your ideal your expectation is yeah, that yeah. True? Is that fair? And, for you and, guys? and I think, that, and that's true of perfumery too. But we often use, you know, existing styles. So we might say we want aldehydic floral, like Chanel Five, for instance, which I personally don't like, um, but I can produce that uh, for for a client, and I know when it smells like a good Chanel Five. 
but um or that style mm-hmm. yeah um so yeah we're not always creating for our personal taste in in the commercial situation and i guess people often use different tools like uh flavor wheels or uh, or scent wheels uh to to give people an idea of uh like the possibility, you know, so like where could they enhance certain certain sensory effects or certain parts of a profile? Um, and that's a really good way of working with the customer to identify the things that they'd like and the things that they don't like, because really all of this, all of the stuff we're working in a game of hedonism, you know, so we're, we're yes, yes, yes. Someone else's appeal, someone else's what what makes them tick. And yeah. from nothing, it's very, it's very difficult to ascertain that. There was a question earlier that we, that we were asked, and I, I think you're definitely better placed than any of us to answer it. But um, one of our council council members actually recently went to um, a, a French. It's called SNIAA Society meeting, and it's their their olfactory kind of society, which was also attended by many uh, students from ISIPCA, which I'm guessing you're probably aware of. So ISIPCA, mm-hmm. the the French school that uh, actually trains people in uh, the art of both perfumery and also uh, flavorists, future flavorists, but also like just the, the sensory sciences. Um, and he, he said he was, he was really, really shocked that 99% of the attendees were, were female. Um, as he feels that like maybe in the, the flavor realm, um, it seems to be maybe... Uh, exhibiting a little bit more parity, so there's there's more of a 50-50 blend between male and female flavorists. Um, but how do you see that in in like perfu- perfumery terms? Do you think that there is like a gender parity, or is that something that is still needing to be kind of balanced? In in fact, uh, I think in in certainly in the UK, um, there are more female perfumers than male. Um, but that's the reverse of, of the case when I joined the industry. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was actually almost asked if it was possible for a, a female to do the job, you know, that my first interview. And that's yeah. such a weird thing, but it's, like, I guess it's a, it's a really great thing to see how far we've moved, because especially when we were talking earlier about like in terms of innate ability, you know, so so it's a, it's a fact that on average, um, women are able to to smell better than men are, um, yeah. and also for longer. You know, so you will uh, females retain their their sense of uh, smell and also their acuity for much later in life than men do. That's helpful for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely not helpful for us. So, Aiden, you better get on and get a job, bro. Yeah, I'm still I'm still smelling things, so I'm I'm keeping up my. Uh, but yeah, it's it's only going downhill, isn't it? Really, when I can. <laughs> I really haven't heard that. That's interesting. That that I knew that, um, and I don't know how much research has actually been done to verify that. But it certainly people's experience. I think uh, you know often partners say like the the the, the woman can smell something, and the, the men mm. says, oh can't really smell that, and that's such a common. Um, thing to find that um, it's interesting that 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 is scientifically backed now is it that that is the case yeah so I think there there have been uh, several studies that have that have backed that up but it would be interesting to I guess research that even more what's Mm -hmm. what's important for us and this is something maybe um, that 
gets us onto a few questions of of your involvement with the BSF and and also well ask some like um, definite leading questions on like how well we're doing and <laughs> hopefully and hopefully you'll agree. Um, but initially, I, I'd like to say like um, we found it quite difficult to kind of see or tr try and find uh, older flavor chemists or flavorists that um, have achieved a lot but are of a certain age you know so that um, there, there was definitely a generational gap in allowing or maybe not allowing but like having females that did the the job you know women that did the the jobs in the sensory industries of like being a flavorist or being a, uh, a perfumer it's pleasing to see that the tides are changing but it's irritating for us trying to uh, get people to speak to um, and ask them about their experiences and see how it's different between uh, males and females in the industries so so what aspect are you thinking of so we're actually just honestly always on the lookout for women in the the flavor and fragrance industries that have accomplished a lot and have a lot to share with our audience. Yeah, well, you know, there would be a number of, of um, female perfumers who, who could probably, you know, give some insight to, to flavorists. As, as I suppose you, I was saying earlier, how much a flavorist inspires me to, in, in certain ways. So I'm sure the, the reverse is true. We have another... A number of women who who would be capable of doing that, I would say. Are you talking, Trevor, from a, a sort of society point of view, or just in general, an in industry trying to find, um, you know, an inspiring older person who's who has this generation gap of, of being a flavorist? I was actually particularly looking at like thinking about what why we set this podcast up in the in the first place. Like one of our ideas to set it up was for for us to to give people the opportunity to learn from wisdom um, that that hasn't yet been captured you know so um, we we get the opportunity now to talk to you about your experiences and and all of that kind of thing um, and we found that there, that there isn't that ability for people to do that you know so if mm. you're a young perfumer or a young flavorist who do you talk to besides your specific mentor or who do you hear from you don't you don't know about these kind of um, captains of industry that exist and have <laughs> yeah, existed. And, yeah, and I think I think there's an opportunity to really open that up with the modern technology, and I'm sure we haven't explored it far enough. And in fact, we did have an idea ourselves for a meeting of some sort for to involve uh, John Wright and maybe myself in oh. a sort of discussion about maybe a particular group of materials and how they could be used in in flavors and in, in in fragrances and that's just a sort of synergy of that if you like yeah that'd be really cool sounds sounds like a super thing uh, super thing to do especially if it was um in person you know like these, mm. these virtual meetings are great but there's definitely always something missing especially for for us that are involved in the the chemical senses we're often talking about it without having something on the other end and that's difficult for us yeah, yeah, because because I've um, had the uh, honour, if you like, uh, uh, doing the IFIAT um, workshops with 
John Wright. So I've attended mm. his his mm. workshops when I'm going to do one in the afternoon or something like that. So that's been uh, I've enjoyed that. So what's what's what what what's been involved in these workshops? I'm actually quite intrigued to the IFYAT workshops. Well, um, I don't know if all your audience will know that IFYAT is uh, an organisation for essential oil uh, trade, and so you know there might be a thousand people attend the conference, but we have a workshop with which is limited. I think it's to twenty five people who who book onto the workshop. And um, for the fragrance one, I used to do a, a sort of introduction to, to fragrance and how essential oils might be used. And then I, I allow the attendees to make a, make a fragrance. So I um, bring some already blended um, accords, if you like, and, and some raw materials. And because the IFIAT is in various different parts of the world, I try and choose essential oils that come from that particular area to highlight. And then they, they make an accord. So usually uh, they really enjoy themselves and it, uh, I think they learn a lot. So they're, they're, off, they're from all parts of the trade. They might be selling or buying essential oils. And uh, I think they just enjoy to understand a bit of the background of some of their clients, perhaps. And, that, and is that the same for, as you were saying, John Wright also was doing one for flavour as well. Is that a kind of similar style of thing, essential oils and how you may use them in a flavour? Yeah, yeah. And he, he tends to, uh, he, he highlights various different uh, raw materials, maybe much in the way he does in his books. I'm not sure I need to read them. <laughs> and uh, then he, he has a, he does a team, uh, sort of almost a competitive creation effort and uh, the best team wins if you know what I mean yeah very interesting so he, he said I think he set them to make a raspberry or something like that with mm -hmm. uh, a number of raw materials I'd be quite interested I, I'm definitely going to attend this anyway you're talking about uh, uh, if, if for example a flavour is going to come I come to BSP events anyway so but I'd be doubly uh, I would have the pleasure to, to come to these um, and and I would be I would be interested whether there would be some sort of workshop for seeing how a flavorist may make one type of note or what perfumery would say an accord, for example, like um, a raspberry flavor. That would be absolutely that would be because you may find you may for example find oh the flavorist one is more wearable than the perfumers or the other way around, and that would be totally surprising. This yeah, or I think a joint yeah. workshop would be mm. brilliant for young flavourists and perfumers or, or people in the trade, not necessarily perfumers and flavourists. Well, I think, it, no, it sounds like, like a, a, definitely there's lots of things that I think we should explore for the future. Edible um, perfumes. Edible perfumes. Well, a lot of perfumes, I guess, would need to be edible, but I, I think there's definitely a lot of uh, room for fragrances or for flavours that also need to perform similar to a perfume would. Like, this is obviously going to be weird, but this is a super weird podcast, mm -hmm. so... <laughs> Let's talk about it. Um, there's, uh, so I, I think Aiden, you and I have spoken. It, it wasn't private because it would sound weird when people hear what it's about. But um, <laughs> there are flavorists with the job of flavoring condoms. I don't know where, how far we want to take this conversation. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll edit this. But um, as a perfumer, I sometimes have to make um, fragrances for 
you know, unusual areas of the body and need to make sure that they're okay as a flavor. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So that's the, the sort of similar. So does that, so that get sent off to a flavorist to some perhaps look at a formula or how, how would that work? Uh, no, well, uh, as a the the other thing that we do do, which is perhaps easier to talk about, is uh, making fragrances for lip products. So yeah. those have for regulations, they must be flavor safe. Um, but in fact, it's quite a small business for us. So perhaps we don't spend as long as we should on on making sure that they taste. Uh, so it's a weird application in terms of the crossover because we certainly make flavors for for lip products too. So like lip oh, balms and things like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you? that's that's yeah. yeah. And, and you... I guess it it sometimes works a bit uh, better for maybe some of the bigger companies that that have both a, a fragrance division and also a flavor division because then you you have kind of the the legislative um, uh, cutoffs uh, kind of included in your catalog. So mm -hmm. um, those things are included, but it, it's definitely a fascinating thing when people think about how it, in those instances, a flavorist may in fact be competing with a perfumer. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was a great tangent. And that's the wonderful thing that condoms can often do for you. Um, they, they bring you around in a, in a, in a fun and um, I guess experiential way. But we have another question, which I think would be but this, this you're, you're really the only person we've ever spoken to that could potentially answer these things satisfactorily. What are the main applications for perfumers? So like, what, what do you mainly work on? Well, um, as we intimated uh, earlier on, the, you know, one of the things that everybody knows is, is the fragrance, fine, fine fragrance, I call it, alcoholic fragrance, uh, which is just designed that's the only raison d'etre for the fragrances for it to smell. Yeah. Um, but then we go down through, I say down, the toilet, toiletries, you know, personal care, shampoos, conditioners, um, any, any skin products, they all are often fragranced. And even some of them, they will say, they're not there's no fragrance and there's no fragrance on what we call the inky uh label which is the label at the back of the product which has to um list all the ingredients in the same way as you have to for flavors and uh sometimes there's no what we parfum there and that mm -hmm. can be because the essential oils that have been used are listed but going back to what Aidan was saying, sometimes you'll see ethylene bracelet there, which is a mask. And the only reason it's there is to is is to create a, an olfactive experience. It has no other function. Um, but it means that they don't have to put parfum on the inky label. This actually brings a valid, like a, a fascinating thing that's happening in the kind of in the world at the moment. But like uh, it's this idea of clean label. You know, it, mm. is, is it is it better to put the the breakout ingredients of that particular perfume uh, as such on the label, or is it is it better to put it put it under the the kind of the catch-all of perfume, it's, or parfum, or it's, aroma? Yeah. It's it's really odd. It is really odd. You you say that because like I did notice about about a year ago. Um, I I was quite surprised to take baby wipes and turn them over 
Anyway, I noticed on the back there's no parfum because this is the sensitive ones. But I was like, it smells like Exaltalead. And then I noticed it had the full name for what Exaltalead's other name is. And I looked this up. They use the synonyms, so therefore it kind of looks like it's some material that's used. I don't know. It's, it could have have many uses. But things like uh, benzyl alcohol are, are used for other purposes, and therefore it's, just, it's, just, it's the same with, with a flavour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, so the 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 it would perhaps I'm not much sure what the inky name is for exotolid, but it might be cyclopentadecanolide. That that was the one, yeah. So, so yeah. to the lay person, they they wouldn't realise it was a, a, it was a, yeah. a mask and a, and only there for the perfume. Yeah, that's but, really uh, weird. Can you can you uh, explain um, the so the the naming convention of a of a fragrance label or of a, a an application product um because I, I guess there will be a few listeners that may not know any of the stuff that we're talking about um but it would be quite good to like kind of get get this uh, at multiple different levels so like how how do you label a, a let's say a lip balm so that's interesting um to begin with, the lip balm must conform to the regulations for the consumer to make it safe on the skin because it's on the skin. And then it has to be safe for as a flavour because it's um, might be imbibed. And then in terms of the label, I think it falls under the cosmetic regulations in Europe. And so, as I say, it has to have this inky label. And there are a lot of regulations controlling that. So all the things like shea butter and you know whatever the lip balm is made of need to be listed. And I don't know if the viewers know that they go in order of their um, level in the frame in the, in the product, and until you get to one percent, and then they they doesn't need to be in the order after that. So the perfume can just be there as parfum. Mm-hmm. But within that, if there are any what we call commonly reported allergens, yeah. um, this is EU legislation, uh, they need to be labelled on the label if they are over a certain level. So there's, uh, there's cutoff levels and they're different for a leave-on product and a wash-off product. Um, So at the moment, there's 26 of these uh, commonly reported allergens, Uh, but we're, and and when that that legislation, I think came in in 2007 to to put the allergens on the inky label. when that first came in, some of our customers would say, oh, I don't want any allergens in my fragrance. And then we'd have to explain, well, if you don't want any allergens, you can't have lemon oil, you can't have rose oil, you can't have geranium oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so customers began to understand that they did actually want allergens in their product, not that they wanted them, <laughs> but they needed to use them. <laughs> it's a bit like saying, well, nobody's going to eat shellfish because some people are allergic to them. You know, we mm-hmm. so... Um, so the idea is that the public has that information 
Well, the other thing is that I think is a bit sad that probably not many of the public who who are allergic to to a fragrance ingredient or component aren't aware of which one it is. So yeah. the labeling may not be helping them. But anyway, to, to what is being muted now is to in fact increase increase that list to about eighty. Eighty. And of course, the problem with that is how are you going to label? Mm -hmm. And so we're discussing ways of digital, you know, giving that information digitally, but then is it available to everyone? Yeah, like a QR yeah. code or something. In store, how, you know, what do you do if someone hasn't got a smartphone? <clears throat> so this is still in discussion and it hasn't, you know, it's been really on the table for some years now and it it's still not materialised. Yeah, if you bought an essential oil from... Perhaps a store would not, I believe, have to to yes, yes. No, you would. If you're sending an you essential would. oil to the public, you would need to put. It still has to have to these. Mm. It still has to be written on. I wasn't sure if that would just be included in a a kosh form somewhere that you wouldn't ever see. Well, it depends. As I say, if you're if you're buying it, like you buy, you know, some of your oils as as a sort of perfume um, enthusiast then you might be under the, as you say, uh, the health and safety regulation, in which case that the labelling is all different. Mm. And that is for supposed more for industry, more for the commercial world. But if anything is being sold to a consumer, it has to have the allergens on it. You're, you're talking about all these allergens that, that, that have to be labelled in a fragrance, but this doesn't have to be labelled in a flavour. You could be a very messy eater eating a flavour and it could go absolutely all over your face and you've got, you well, know, your annual. <laughs> this is where the legislation is a bit mad. You know, the dermatologists, obviously, they see the really serious cases and they're, they're passionate about what they do. Um, but, you know, they, they sort of say, well, we've got to ban cinnamic aldehyde because it's a really bad allergen. And then somebody stands up and says, well, what about all the buns, you know, the cinnamon buns that we're eating? You know, so it it's sort of the same with basil. You know, that, that has... Yeah, you're looking, for a, you're looking for some some logic behind these things. And actually, this is, it's an interesting thing. We, we actually did a podcast with um, Alexander Moore um, from EFA recently. And uh, although EFA still retains the secondary F um, for fragrance, EFA no longer deal with fragrances. Um, but it was really, really enlightening to hear about how, um, so he's, I guess, working uh, with d different companies to make sure that the regulations and the legislation that comes out um, is effective to the consumer, but also um, makes sense for the, the companies that produce these products. Because a, a quick and unthought out change um, has drastic effects, you know, and not all of them are good. Um, so it, it, was, it was really enlightening. And I think you would enjoy uh, the conversation we had. Reg regulations is a, a very interesting part of, of flavors as well. And we, we have spoken about is it. Well, well, it's 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 not just interesting, but it's 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 empirical, really, isn't it? So yeah, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Marianne, would you be able to kind of um, tell us what what kind of regulations go on in perfumes? What kind of regulatory bodies, and what do you have to consider if you're making a perfume? Yeah, I think I think it. From what I understand, it's slightly less um, difficult than flavors from from. You know what I, I've gleaned as a, uh, from flavorists, but it is there's still a lot of um, 
a lot of work that we have to do, which we, I don't know how we would do it without computers. Mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, basically yeah. we have a body called IFRA, International uh, Fragrance Organi uh, Association, and it started in 73 and it's self-regulating. And we have recently they've they've changed the way they calculate things and they've calculated how a material might be ex uh, how a material would be exposed if it's in a body wash for instance it's going to be over the whole body if it's shampoo they've taken into account that it will be on the hands as well as the the head um, so they've been very careful and worked out the exposures of um, all the different applications. And then they have found the, what they call the, you know, the safe level of exposure mm. and, and done all the sums. And then they give us a, a safe level of each component, each chemical or um, component of an essential oil. Um, we, we have levels of those that we're allowed to use in as 12 different categories, which also have subcategories. So for instance, the mm -hmm. baby product um, would have a, a lower level than, yeah. than a product for an adult. And I guess all of these things, um, one of the things is like computers making us safe since they were invented. Thanks computers. And then <laughs> the second thing is um, all, all of these kind of ideas about like how, um, legislation exists and why it exists and um it, some people think it might, might be like sometimes a, a freedom to trade and all of that kind of stuff at the end of the day we're we're all trying to make the best product sell to the biggest amount of people to make yeah. things safe and make sure that um everything that we produce is um kind of the safest it possibly can be you know yeah. so oftentimes safer than nature Yes, this is what people don't understand, you know, that, that, that the naturals aren't necessarily safer. Yeah. And it's what, one of the things that you would, I guess, uh, alluding to earlier is that um, oftentimes um, things need to be legislated by their intended use. So you can buy lemon oil as lemon oil for cooking or for whatever. Um, and then you wouldn't necessarily need to have a topical label. So a, a label mm. for uh, applying it topically, topically as a, a massage oil. Uh, by the way, don't ever, don't anyone ever use lemon oil as a massaging oil um, because it'll burn through your skin. Um, equally, don't put it in um, low density polyethylene cups because it'll eat right through them. All of these things are like fascinating for people to, to think about the world around them in a completely different way. Marianne, uh, do you have any questions for us? It interests me that you use some of the flower absolutes. Maybe you could talk about how you use jasmine absolute or violet absolute in flavours. That that interests me because it's, you know, I think of those ingredients as very much perfumery ingredients. Yeah, so... Um, well, personally, this is kind of a, a personal thing, and I think maybe different flavors would use it in a different way, but uh, I'll often use jasmine absolute um, in uh, sometimes in peach flavors or sometimes in different fruit, fruit flavors like that to kind of 
impart some of the qualities of Jasmine Absolute. So uh, you you kind of want a bit of the the musky notes, um, and also I guess um, Jasmine's really really good at um, long lasting. You know, so you have like this long lasting effect, and I think I I often would use it in those kinds of um, uh, deciduous fruit flavors in order to kind of impart that characteristic. Um, Violet Absolute is a bit different though because it's quite fatty. And um, it is also quite green, but it's also very long lasting, um, but has a completely different characteristic than that you can't necessarily create from uh, single raw materials. You know, it, it would take a long time to kind of create that same note that you get from, from Violet Absolute. And I've actually had a few issues in the past um, <laughs> accidentally overdosing with Violet Absolute, and it does stay with you for a very long time. Um, but, but, but I don't know, that, that maybe answers some of the question. Um, I'd like to ask, Jazz, so, so you, you're speaking it from a, a, a fruity kind of floral perspective. Um, what about on the savory side? Could Jasmine be used for like celery? Because I do find that these things, so specifically Jasmine Lactone has this sort of celery kind of um, aspect for me personally, but I'm not sure, could it be used in the savory side. I know, no, for sure. But like, I, I think that what we're talking about differently is like, so Jasmine Absolute is is not necessarily the Jasmine Lactone or yeah, Jasmine yeah, yeah, or what yeah. you're talking about. You know, so you're, you're actually using it for the complexity of what that com complex ingredient brings yeah. to, to the whole. You know, so maybe you're building it alongside other chemicals to drive certain characteristics. Mm. Um, because if you think about like a what's it methyl dihydrojasmonate um is used quite a lot in strawberries but um so that i i think that might be the other name for hedio yes, yes. Um, but just because it has jasmine in the in the common name doesn't mean it necessarily has anything to do with with jasmine but jasmine absolute certainly does absolutely does absolutely <laughs> it's interesting you saying that because i um Aiden, that, that celery is is used uh, in flavors, but we we use celery. I like to use celery seed oil in the jasmine. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. right. To make uh, ah, yeah, because some of these uh, certain compounds are actually very expensive that are found if you bought them. Yeah, yeah. Um, jasmine lactone, I think, <laughs> is very expensive, but um, celery seed obviously gives you that really complex. Um, mm celery note rather than one of the molecules the other thing i like to use in a jasmine is fluve do mm -hmm. you use yeah. fluve in fluve? yeah yeah i use fluve uh, there's a few different things yeah to give you it kind of gives like a, a woody herbal character yeah but, which is but we, we should really explain cool. to the listeners that fluve is a specific hay um product and there's an absolute and there's two oils i think from fluve but it's a hay that i think comes from the uh, I'm going to say Pyrenees, but is it the Alps, the high? Mm, high I think Alps? so. I think that I think the fluve is, yeah. And then you you also have different things that may be used. Uh, well, I guess people would know about like bison bison grass vodka, and then things like that, where you can kind of get some some of that herbal grassy character um, out from the from the product. But I guess you would use similar things. There's there's quite a lot of those herbal grassy. Uh, kind of hay notes 
um, w- one of which would be, I, I guess, uh, like Tonka uh, extracts mm. or Tonka absolutes, mm. um, which is actually a controlled substance. So, well, that's what uh, I was thinking. How much can you use it in flavors? Because I'm surprised that it's so widely spoken about in flavors because its main component, of course, is banned in flavors. Is that right? It's coumarin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so there are things like we use like dihydrocoumarin, which doesn't have the same kind of activity um, as Tonka. Um, no, but we actually use it sometimes just as a, a, a demonstration kind of material. So using like Tonka Absolute and stuff like that. But you're quite right. Some of these things have, um, through the years, uh, it has become identified that things have a certain uh, maybe carcinogenic activity at certain high use levels, or uh, perhaps it is um, just unsafe for, for other different reasons. So it's good to see that, like, as we continue, um, we continue to get safer, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, this, uh, there was another thing. There's a, a material that I heard about for the first time the other day that I think has been uh, banned for a number of years, but called <laughs> deer tongue. Yes, yes, yes. I, that, that was around when I first started, but it's been, it's been banned for a long time. Deer yeah. tongue? Is that, is that like a sort of extract of a deer's tongue? <laughs> it no. isn't this time, no. No, no, it's a plant that has that name because it looks a bit like a deer tongue, I think. What does that smell like? Quite interesting. That, I, I, I've really forgotten because we are talking sort of 70s, 80s, but I, oh, think, right, yeah. I think it, again, was in the similar field of coumarin mm-hmm. sort of yeah. area, wasn't it? <clears throat> yeah, and kind of like that... that uh, grassy hay kind of note um but again we've we've used one descriptor to describe things that that are wholly different from one another um but it gets you kind of an idea about those things um the other thing i wanted to ask you about and which is what um what i admire uh flavors for and over the years they've helped me a bit is is your use of high impact sort of sulfur and pyrazine i was just going to ask you how do you use that as a perfumer yeah i'll let you ask the flavors for <laughs> so yeah what, what would you i don't i i admire your uh, as a as a group your knowledge of those sorts of ingredients and i feel that we don't use them enough or don't yeah. benefit no, and, and I, I feel like you, you you potentially could use them a bit more but the, the point is they're also not that stable. A lot of uh, high, higher odor impact sulfurs are not that stable. Um, so p- perhaps it wouldn't necessarily work that well in a, uh, a formulation, um, but maybe mm. are protected sometimes uh, by the solvent system you use or uh, what they're being used with. But I really feel like I'm being tested quite a lot here. <laughs> my knowledge. But... Um, yeah, so th- there's lots of different uh, kind of tonalities that you would use these high impact uh, sulfur materials to really create a difference or a point of difference. So things like mango or uh, even more savory-ish kind of things. So like um, anything that, that kind of uh, involves the Maillard reaction, you're always mm. generating these, these kind of sulfur compounds. So coffee is, is like a big um, point. And, and I think that... Um, optimal use of a great sulfur can fully change the game. You know, I think that um, you're using such tiny amounts of these things that, first of all, they're really, really difficult to t- detect analytically. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is really great because then now you've added something that someone else wouldn't be able to analytically find out uh, kind of about um, because you've used such a small amount, but they really create a, a completely different facet in a lot of different flavors, which you wouldn't necessarily always expect. Yeah, yeah. Nice, sure. Uh, Christoph Laudemio, you, you speak about, uh, he's, he's, he's a perfumer. Um, you speak about adding these sulfur compounds so that they're actually quite hard to detect at levels that you can actually perceive. Now, one of Christoph Lodemel's fragrances, and, and he actually in his description says that he uses the specific sulfur compound. But if you try to identify it, you wouldn't find it anyway. But it's so interesting to actually name that a sulfur compound's in there. Maybe it's a selling point. I think it's quite... But Christoph is very honest about what he uses in, in his fragrances. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to be open about that. Because uh, I, I have a story about um, one of the sulfur chemicals um, and I'm slightly confused which one it is, but it was in, in black currant. So one that smells a bit like Tomcat. Yeah, thiamenthone. And uh, I was making a black currant and I was really happy with my black currant. And then I showed it to the evaluator who is someone who would actually choose what what fragrances would go to the public or to the, the client and she screwed up her nose and said oh that's terrible so I thought ah she's perceiving this um sulfur material oh, different yeah. to me and so then I I used to use her as my barometer for it so she was happy with it and I, I used to lower the level about 10 times mm. what I was happy with so that as I say was an instance where I understood a bit about or experienced the difference between people's sense of smell before it was appreciated scientifically yeah so she yeah, has a really threshold cool. to me yeah it's really awesome and I think that you know sometimes you can actually do it when you when you're compounding a particular fragrance or flavor you you must have seen that like uh, you can reach threshold quite quickly so um, smelling something at the end of one day, uh, having been in a, maybe a, mm. a, like a fume hood and then coming in the next day and smelling it, things stick out like crazy. And you think, what on earth was I doing yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> the importance of testing. Yeah, yeah. The other thing, of course, is in, in the factory when you get a, a fresh batch and you're smelling it against the standard and one of these sulfur com compounds will smell much more in the fresh sample. So you're never quite sure because you can't analyze necessarily quantitatively. Yeah. You almost have to make it again fresh in the lab. Exactly. To see if the yeah. factory one is correct. Because oh, I see, right. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, and that's, a, that's an interesting, so sorry, before you go on, that's a super interesting thing to think about in terms of like um, the, the logic of uh, how something works. If you, if you were to, uh, I guess, and, and I think it's the same for, for you guys as it is for flavorites, but, um, there's a certain accuracy of a balance. You know, if we're, we're measuring mm. different materials out on a balance, um, there's a certain accuracy that you can get to. So maybe it's like four decimal places or whatever. And you're maybe only making 200 grams of a, a certain product because you're just doing it in the lab to test it. Now you're producing the, this 200 grams and you're creating the formulation for 200 grams. But now as this is scaled up and now has to be done in a pilot version in the factory, they're creating a lot more than you are uh, as the pilot version. But if you think about how likely it is 
to be incorrect on certain materials. If they have the same accuracy of balance as you do, then it's much it's, there's a there's a much higher likelihood of you not having created it correctly on your balance, creating a small amount, producing a small amount. Yeah, it's an interesting. The dynamic. art of, 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 of making the factory and the lab, you know, yeah. uh, compatible with each other. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because it's just quantitative and it's sometimes just about like thinking further on. But there have been a lot of times where I've maybe uh, tested a first make and said, oh, no, this this doesn't match something that's been produced in the factory. And then actually the, the part, the factory were producing it exactly as the formula suggested. You know, and they had a, a much greater tolerance than I had because they were making so much more. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the, the likelihood of there being a mistake is really very much pointed towards me <laughs> on my on my small scale than yeah. it is on, on theirs, yeah, uh, which is just a fascinating thing to think about. So, yeah, that that's pretty cool when you think about industrially, when you're trying to apply it back to, to lab scale. But when you're formulating so you're, you're actually creating a flavor on a small scale how do you account for things like evaporation because if you've got a much smaller vial then something that's in a solvent would you use it in a sort of uh, lower uh, volatility solvent to because these things will shoot off and then industrially it's going to be a totally different uh yeah a kind of scale for for loss through vol volatilization yeah so it's a really good point and it's something that you definitely have to account for you know, the scale up is a is a big thing that uh, I guess um, some big companies employ formula engineers. So um, mm -hmm. maybe safe and accurate ways of producing something at a large scale rather than in the in the lab, because in the lab you can do lots of different things, you know, and it's difficult to then put scale that up to a, a, a larger scale. So even things like, you know, uh, mimosa, using mimosa like absolute or, or things that might be a solid at room temperature, it's really, really difficult to now, how do you scale that up? How are they going to then dissolve that? Um, mm -hmm. Do they use a, a solution? So dilution of that and and add it separately. And it becomes like this. This ma The math becomes. Quite, yeah. Yeah. I want to get on to the part now where we ask kind of like, you know, just spur of the moment questions. I wanted to ask, now this is for both of you, is double concentrate, so you've got things like a, a diluting juice or squash, whatever you want to call it, um, is that like the equivalent of like an eau de parfum? Thinking about a more concentrated perfume and a concentrated drink, because the flavour is going to be concentrated. So, is to, to me, I'd say yes. To me, I'd say yes, but I would need to have like accurate, uh, like a... a Definition of uh, eau de parfum versus eau de cologne. Yada, yeah. Yada. yeah, well, it sounds like they're the same. I, I'm a bit like you. I would need a definition of what double concentrate um, juice Yeah, like uh, Ribena squash. Ribena yeah. squash, if, it, if it, they said double concentrate and it came in half the pack size, but you use, you use half the amount to half the amount. create the same. But it yeah. might not be necessarily double the flavor actual extracts in there. It might be. So a, a fragrance, an eau de parfum is sometimes sort of 25%, 30%, even 35% fragrance in, in ethanol and water. And then uh, a typical eau de cologne, eau de toilette might be 15. So, you know, half the, half the level. 
So, but I guess there is, is variation. It is a co continuum. Yeah. yeah. You know. But what may be quite complicated is that I think that's that was the, the older way of thinking thinking about uh, uh, fragrances. But you could use twenty five percent. Oh, I, I don't know uh, methyl uh, thiobutyrate and or thirty five percent of that in a fragrance, and that would blow the whole town probably. To be honest, so yep. I guess it's also accounting for what these older activities or older thresholds are going to be like. And that'd be like a bit like a double concentrator, won't it? You can add probably what, actually one of the things that one of the ways some companies are making sustainable fragrances is making them so that they can be used at a tenth of the mm -hmm. of the level that they in in whatever product, in, yeah. in either fine fragrance or or in the toiletries or whatever. Yeah. So they're making them using some of these materials that we've spoken about and not putting in uh, sort of fragrance fillers that are, are sort of cheap materials that are often quite low in their odor power, but they make the fragrance more affordable. Mm -hmm. Um, supposedly, but but making something that's really powerful but but hedonistic at the same time, and uh, can be used about the tenth of the level, which of course is sustainability wise really good because you know all the transport is less. Mm. everything yeah. all the all the costs are less yeah so it is a really good thing and it's something that i've actually focused on a bit myself is like trying to to uh, make things more sustainable but you do immediately run into the problem with thermodynamics like the the, the fact of the matter is we're using lots of different materials that aren't necessarily um as soluble as they they need to be to stay in solution so you have you always have mm. a max a maximum solubility or maximum level that something can be um, uh, miscible or dissolved in something else. Uh, but then they also are more reactive with one another. All of these things are, are reactive compounds and, and volatile. And so by making something maybe 10 times stronger, you're also making sure that that thing is now more volatile. So more reactive, um, uh, more unsafe to transport, um, all of those kind of factors now mm -hmm. start to come into it that you didn't necessarily concentrate on as much. But it's it's like a really it's a clever way of like um, thinking about you know uh, there's many ways to skin a cat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really really cool. Interesting. Okay, <laughs> here's a here's another quick round question. What's the value of organic? What's the value in what sort of sense? I have to leave it blank. I have to leave it open to interpretation. I think I'm going to, I, I want to think of a philosophical answer for this. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm the value of organic. Well, that's actually, a, that's a, a nice poetic answer. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was thinking in terms of um, what we were talking about earlier about something being better for you or worse for you health-wise you know like a health i think in, for me organic is better for the planet i don't know that i mean as far as i, I understand the sort of vegetables and things that are organic tend to have a better nutrition uh, they've got a wider range of minerals etc and of course they haven't got pesticides on you know they don't need to wash the pesticides off um but my 
reason for using organic in terms of the vegetables that I eat is that they are better for the environment. Mm -hmm. awesome. awesome thing to think about. I don't agree, but uh, that's oh, maybe, really? that's uh, interesting. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's the topic for another for another conversation. I, I, so I want to ask you, Trevor, have you ever been asked something quite ridiculous as can you make an organic tomato flavor? Is that ever been or something that's organic that you couldn't think, well, how would that actually totally change its flavor? Can you make an organic flavor? Yeah, yeah. I have been asked that. You and, have been and, asked that. And, and, I, and I equally thought it was an, a ridiculous question, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't asked. Um, so you would need to make sure that your raw materials or the raw materials that you used uh, were sourced um, via um, agriculture that was, I guess, organic, and that the isolation of the raw materials was also deemed organic. Um, what the value of that is for a flavor, I have literally zero idea. So I wasn't able to fulfill their request. If, if that is an answer. But I was talking about something to smell like an organic fruit or vegetable because you would not know by actually from a flavor perspective if it's organic. You just have to make it, I guess, different and better. And then yes, go, somehow, yeah, that's, so what we, that's what I mean. An heirloom tomato flavor. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> Well, I think we've, we've probably um, come to the end of what has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Marianne, thank you so much for your time. Um, we've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I know that um, Aidan was chomping at the bit to get you on and be able to discuss uh, things with you. You've given us a, a completely different insight into um, what I, I guess are jobs that are not so dissimilar. Um, but it's really cool to see your different perspective and your your take on uh, everything from legislation to um, creation so very cool thank you so much well thank you I've really enjoyed it I, I hope um, I hope we can do more of these collaborative uh, events between the two societies as well as you know between flavorists and perfumers yeah definitely I think that we've, we've already started um, something that probably won't end for uh, hopefully ever um, is that we, we're all collaborating and we're happy to uh, contribute to one another's development, which is really great. And mm. um, yeah, we have we have definitely got um, what's it captive audiences and it would be cool to give them more and more opportunity to engage. So very cool. Excellent. And thank you. Thank you, Aidan, for um, suggesting me. Thanks again. I really enjoyed it. This has been a deep dive into the fascinating world of flavours with BSF Flavour Talks. I hope that you've seen there is much more behind flavours. It is hard to acquire that right level of experience in order to create the perfect taste. If you've worked up an appetite for flavour signs, stay tuned for more episodes and help support our podcast by sharing it with others on social media or leave us a review. I'm Aidan.